1: well uh David Ellinson and Michael Marmer really really thank you very much from the bottom of my heart sincerely that you've agreed to set aside some time to talk to me about your the book that you edited american Jewish thought since nineteen thirty four so as we as in the talk before we said I, I have some questions and they're they're sort of like launching pads and if if uh we don't need to necessarily be totally specific with these questions but hopefully that they'll move you in various directions all right so my first question uh, is the obvious one uh, what's the significance of the date 1934 uh, i mean i know and you know and i mean i want you to to expand on that but i was also thinking uh, you know i i saw the review of your book in in the ccar journal and the um uh, the author of that review mentioned some some author who'd written a significant Jewish theology book I don't remember the name of it but my my example is Kaufman Kohler's Jewish theology systematically and historically considered published in nineteen seventeen so why
2: why nineteen thirty four okay um, well let me take the first crack and then Michael can uh, can respond uh We started in 1934 because part of what we saw is that uh, the particular series in which our book appears, the Brandeis uh, series in modern Jewish thought, those books are limited to about 100,000 words. While that may sound like a lot, when you are looking at the entire scope of the American Jewish experience and the thinkers who have... um, the, the thinkers who have uh, been significant, uh, we were really quite quite limited, and we saw early on, and we mentioned this in the introduction to the book, that we made a decision to simply uh, try to deal with uh, American Jewish thought over the last hundred years, and we mention in particular Kaufman Kohler's work as being particularly worthy. In inclusion in any anthology on American Jewish thought, uh, represents one of the greatest systematic works of Jewish thought in our time. However, we began in '34 because, uh, as you know, Phil, that is the year that Mordecai Kaplan, who in many ways was uh, the most quintessential of the 20th century American Jewish thinkers, that was the year he published his "Judaism as a Civilization," which. In a sense, we used as an Archimedean point a launching pad for our work. Uh, In addition, we thought it would be significant to begin prior to the uh, Holocaust because we did not want to indicate that all of American Jewish thought uh, emerged even in the modern period, uh, the contemporary period, uh, in response to the Shoah. Okay, Michael, you have something to add?
3: I would just add that um, uh, we found, David has explained to you why we needed to limit ourselves, but I would make a case without perhaps uh, exaggerating this, why placing uh, this, uh, by telling our story from the publication of Judaism as a civilization, speaks to an explicitly, new American Jewish voice. You know, the theological work, the very important theological work that you mentioned by Kaufman Kohler first appeared in German. It is in many ways uh, or a version thereof. It is in many ways an expression of a German liberal reform sensibility translated actually into English, but also translated into an American context. Kaplan, although he was born in Europe, is a very American thinker. And at this uh, moment of the publication of Judaism and Civilization marks, we would argue, a, a kind of a novum, a kind of a, a birth of, of an American Jewish sensibility. Could you point to American Jews who preceded 1934, who would have a shout in being included? Absolutely. But it isn't just because of the uh, word limitations um the other thing i would want to underline from what david said is that setting this up as a response to disaster and holocaust and all the rest of it by pitching it from 1945 would also have missed something significant from our uh, perspective we didn't want to tell a story in which all of contemporary american jewish thought is about the traumas and dramas of events in the 20th century and that's one of the reasons also where we put it in Depression-era America rather than post-Shoah America.
1: All right, good. So uh, I don't want to um, spend too much time on Mordechai Kaplan, although hes he, I believe he, he, there are two selections from him in the book. But, uh, David, if I got you right, you said uh, that Judaism as a civilization is the quintessential work of American Jewish thought or words like that. But you use the word quintessential. So... I don't think we can move on in this discussion uh, until one or both of you say something a little more specific about uh, why that's so. What is it about about Judaism as a civilization that's so American?
2: Well, okay, Uh, I'm happy to start again. Uh, Part of what I think makes it so American is that the very uh, emphasis on uh, Judaism as a civilization, Kaplan begins to speak In American terms, uh, sociological terms, one sees the influence of uh, the American environment upon him. One of the interesting points, I think, in Judaism as a civilization is the 100-page introduction. Namely, uh, Kaplan wrote what is probably... One of the best essays ever written, if one looks at the first hundred pages or so in that way, that explains the uh, situation in which American Judaism or modern Judaism in the West in general, and American Judaism in particular, found itself with a change in uh, the theological beliefs that had classically undergirded uh, classical rabbinic faith uh, with the emergence of a community that was voluntaristic and not coercive, that had lost its uh, legal moorings as a separate corporation and civilization. Kaplan speaks in a uh, highly pronounced American idiom uh, in responding to all of these changes. In addition, the pragmatism of, ju- of Dewey finds a significant expression of uh, In Kaplan, for all of these reasons, I see this book as a particularly, in quotes, as Michael said, an American book. And for that reason, uh, I think it was an appropriate springboard for uh, a work on American Judaism over the past 90 years. Okay. Uh, Michael, do you want to add
3: something to that? There's there's nothing... (laughs) <laughs> I could say I could say it in an English accent, but David said it well.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, <clears throat> excuse me. All right, let me see the next question. Um, uh, well, you kind of answered this, but I, I I hope you think it's worth uh, uh, kind of kind of going around to this question, and that's um, uh, you know why only American Jewish thought. You know, why not, uh, you know, Jewish thought in general or American and Israeli Jewish thought? Because, you know, America is not the only place where there have been significant contributions to Jewish thought, especially in Israel, but, but other places as well.
3: I'll, I'll jump in there. Look, the short answer to your question was this was a brief that David received initially um, from um, our publisher. It wasn't something that we dreamt up. And there's no claim, there's no implicit claim here that American Jewish thought has some exclusive right to be uh, of interest. In fact, um, in the same series, the Brandeis series, there's an excellent um, uh, anthology of French Jewish uh, thought, which shows um, how varied and how interesting a range of different you know, uh, uh, approaches to Jewish thought, Jewish philosophy have been. But once we were set the task, Um, we found it intrinsically interesting and worthwhile to ask some questions about what might be distinctively American. Of course, we had to do some, um, we had to make some, hopefully not arbitrary, but some contestable choices. Who is an American for the purposes of this book? Um, Is America in the United States only or is Canada included? Do you have to be born in the USA? Do you have to live your whole life there? Um, Presumably, it's not enough just to have, you know, been in passing in one of the airport lounges. So and you'll see a number of people in the book, you know, George Steiner um, is not primarily thought of as an American Jewish thinker. Um, for that matter, some of the category questions we had to grapple with, what constitutes Jewish thought? Today, a lot of of really significant creative Jewish thinking is being done in different genres, uh, poetry, um, you know, the film, uh, you know, Bob Dylan got a Nobel Prize. I wasn't, we didn't think of putting Dylan in this book, but I'm just trying to say, there's a lot of interesting stuff that doesn't fit the usual genre of, uh, of Jewish thought. And we had to work out for a book with these limitations, what we were gonna put in. The, the last thing I'll say is, whilst there is no claim here that the only interesting modern Jewish thought is American Jewish thought, that's not a claim you're going to hear from either of us, there is a conversation to be found within our book, are there distinctive American cadences and nuances which emerge as one considers this, you know, almost, if you like, artificial constraint of expressions of North American Jewish thinking? Okay. Okay.
1: All right. That's, that, 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 that's helpful. That's a good answer.
2: The only thing I would add to what Michael said, and in a sense it's just an addendum to his mentioning of George Steiner, we did include people like Tamar Ross and... David Hartman, uh, who had been educated in some measure. Indeed, in some cases, uh, most of their education took place in the United States. But, of course, they write in Israel. However, their works uh, are clearly addressed to North American Jewry. So for that reason, uh, I just supplement Michael's uh, answer by saying that there clearly were individuals who we included who don't even dwell in the United States, dwell in Israel, but whose work is clearly aimed at a North American audience? All right,
1: I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna jump ahead in my list of questions and ask ask this because it seems appropriate at the moment. Um, you, the book is broken up into a number of sections. Um, um, I, I have it in front of me, but I don't remember exactly how many sections. But. Uh, um, I I guess I'd be interested in, this is a broad sort of question. Um, They represent topics, but they also represent, of course, a history because it's 1934 to the present. Uh, What are some of the trends, concerns? I said concerns is a better word. What are some of the concerns that Jewish men and Jewish women have thought about over the, over these several decades, since 1934, that, um, that, are, are important and well worth our attending to people, people who are reading this book. What are some of the topics?
3: David, do you want to jump in?
2: No, why don't you go first, Michael? Uh, okay, so you know, I, I,
3: I'll, I'll say two things in response to this interesting question. The first is to quote um, a paragraph which appears at the beginning of our introduction. Um, it's taken from the book, the Jewish book published in 1934 that nobody remembers. Uh, one of them this is a book published by Eugene Cohn called the future of judaism in america and we kind of use this as a sort of a watchword for our uh, for thinking about our volume he writes in 1934 i mean imagine this is before the second world war before the establishment of the state etc he writes the conditions under which judaism must maintain itself if it is to survive in the modern american environment are so different from those that have confronted the Jewish people in other times and places that Jews naturally ask themselves what sort of Judaism will emerge as a result of Jewish efforts at adaptation. And I think that's actually a lot of the pieces that we ended up including in this work respond explicitly or implicitly to that charge. What needs to happen to our construal our understanding of judaism in response to these radical changes the changes of modernity in the 20th and 21st century but also particularly american uh, developments the second thing i'd say in response to your question is we found as we were looking through and and categorizing these uh, these excerpts into different sections that there were certainly i think it's possible to point to Uh, one major distinction between what you might call perennial concerns of Jewish thought and specific responses to new developments and upheavals. So the chapters, there are to your uh, previous question, there are seven, seven big sections in this book and God and revelation and commandment, which are the first two, would appear in any summary of Jewish thinking at any time over the last two thousand years, at least. Right? These have been perennial concerns. Um, actually, the third chapter on spirituality—you um, could make a case to say that, in if you were doing an anthology of, you know, medieval Jewish thought or whatever—it's it, not clear that spirituality as its own section as its own chapter would warrant inclusion whereas as we read the stuff that we were reading we saw more and more that spirituality has become an american jewish um, uh, preoccupation and it warranted its own particular section and then you have uh if i go down the list uh, to chapters chapter five the holocaust and israel take the most epoch making the most uh um uh, kind of fundamental uh, uh, traumas and dramas of 20th century Jewish history, and then ask the question, how do American Jewish thinkers respond to them? So this is a kind of distinction I'd like to draw between American contemporary American Jews grappling with questions that Jews have always grappled with, on the one hand, and on the other, trying to relate to great new developments like, for example, the sixth chapter, feminism, gender, and sexuality, these were much, much uh, less prominent preoccupations of Jewish thought until this era, in this moment, in this place. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, I I was thinking that um, uh, although feminism, I I guess feminism to some extent was, was, was embryonic, but it wasn't unknown. I mean, thinking, for example, Kaplan having his daughter Judith have the first bat mitzvah in, uh, in America. But yeah, but the, but, but the concerns that they're responding to in the section, I have the book open to the table of contents, um, that they're responding to are, are, are you know, I'd I, I like to put it at 1965. It's a totally arbitrary date, but 1965 is when, when we became aware of the critique, the social critique of feminism and began to respond to it. And I'm looking at the chapter on spirituality, and there too, Michael, in response to what you said, I'd say the first three authors—Arnold uh, Jacob Wolf and Joseph Soloveitchik and Abraham Joshua Heschel—they kind of fall into—I um, don't know—I don't I, 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 the phrase that the old guard is in my head. But it's probably not a very formal term, but uh, you know, Arnold Jacob Wolf was a con- contributor to uh, made contribution to kind of reconceiving Reform Judaism, but not. But not in the light of, uh, you know, Zalman Shachter or Arthur Waskow, who figure later in the chapter, and Soloveitchik is Soloveitchik, and Heschel is Heschel. But but then the rest of the rest of the contributors, I uh, do respond to the notion of spirituality, uh, in a way that uh, Mordecai Kaplan, for example, probably couldn't have thought about. Now, David, I, I wondered if you had anything sure. you wanted yeah, to add. Yeah,
2: no, at. I mean, I would. Uh you know, simply follow up on what both of you have been, uh, been saying. It's interesting in the spirituality section, the essay that we include by Arnold Jacob Wolf, uh, was included, uh, as I'm going to call it in quotation marks, a kind of contra or anti position. You'll note that it's even entitled against spirituality in his, uh, noir, as it were, is Zalman chapter. He's, uh, quite critical of him and, uh, the way in which he characterizes and one might even say caricatures his approach. Uh, and then of course we brought in, uh, other thinkers, uh, really from the most part over the last 20 to 30 years. And it, by the way, reflects the, uh, urgency and prominence with which spirituality has been treated, uh, at our own, uh, moment. By the way, I would add, uh, We did not think there would be necessarily a separate section on spirituality when we uh, first conceptualized the book. But we just saw, of course, how much writing there had been in this area, specifically self-identifying in this way. I'd add that in relationship to the chapter on the Holocaust in Israel, and I want to be clear when I uh, say this, Zionism emerges and uh, the idea of Hakamat Medina Yisrael, the establishment of the state of Israel is of course completely separate uh, from the Holocaust, historical uh, and temporal linkages aside. But one of the things we noted was that in American Jewish thought, particularly of the last 70 years, the two are completely linked to one another. In other words, uh, Mignut Leshevach, we move from the devastating uh, genocide of the Holocaust and the destruction of our people to the emergence of the state of uh, Israel. And the two are linked in the thoughts of virtually every uh, Jewish thinker who we explored in the post-Holocaust world. And in that sense, we often tried to begin each of our sections with an essay uh, that serves, in a sense, as an introduction to what will follow. And in this sense, we use Neusner to, uh, in an essay that Jacob Neusner had written about the role of uh, the Judaism of destruction and redemption, represented by the twin epoch making events, to quote Michael, of uh, the Shoah and the establishment of the State of Israel as a kind of framework for the essays that would uh, that would follow. Well, finally, the last point I'd make, not about the feminism, gender, and sexuality section, but uh, the section about peoplehood. Uh, Kaplan, of course, is the one who coined this term in opposition to a term like nationalism uh, at the end of, uh, well, and during the 1940s. And, It's interesting here again to see the evolution of how this term has come to be employed. And we conclude that section with an essay by Noam Pianko, who questions the utility of this concept of Jewish peoplehood in uh, an era like our own, uh, where the notion that we are one, of course, comes to be questioned in ways that... uh, may not have been prevalent in the world I grew up in in the United States in the 50s and 60s. Uh, The last point I'd make here in this regard, and I'm not sure it's completely uh, germane to the question you asked, but it's a question that I think about. We did try in this book to present as much as possible, what I'm going to call dyads, that is to say, in the peoplehood section, you have someone like Michael Wishagrad, uh, who talks about Judaism as corporeal bodily election and focuses on the issue or the symbol of circumcision, uh, as embodying that quite literally. Uh, In other words, Judaism becomes literally incarnate, uh, enfleshed uh, through the covenant of circumcision. And then we'll have, for example, an essay by Judith Plaskow, who is uh, directly critical of um, Wishagrod for precisely that reason from her... Feminist perspective. The last line here I would mention is that when you want to talk about the impact of the contemporaneous moment, we had initially thought that uh, we would entitle the section on feminism, gender, and sexuality as feminism. But quite frankly, uh, in discussions uh, in particular with my children, they all explained to me why that was completely inadequate uh, today and that gender and sexuality had to be included in this section. It may have been that uh, the impact of feminism led to uh, gender and uh, sexuality types of concerns, but in our day, uh, the fuller treatment of the category demanded uh, this kind of title for this section as opposed to the more limited one of feminism. Yeah. I, I wanted to say two
1: things real quick. One, uh, just about Arnold Jacob Wolfe. I, I knew him a little bit, uh, not, not, not terribly well, but I met him a couple of times. And I brought him in as a scholar when I was a Hillel director at Michigan State University. And um, I knew him as a, as a you know, smart, pretty nice guy, but could be really cantankerous. And man, when I read that essay, I, I could just hear his voice. It was, it was pure, pure Arnold Jacob Wolf. Um, the the other thing is about peoplehood, and I don't want to go off onto a long sidebar about this, but, you know, peoplehood is a construct. I mean, you pointed out, you know, it it, it was constructed, uh, you know, in the thirties. And it's been a very useful term for, for, for joining the Jewish people into one, you know, into one, um, Strange and disparate body, but but wherever we are, whatever we do, whatever we think, whatever we say, we're all Jews, you know. But I also think you go back to the you know nineteenth century when when uh, the, the you know the ghetto walls fell and liberal Judaism was born and and Jews were becoming citizens of this country or that country, peoplehood, uh, wasn't you know, it, you know it wasn't on the wasn't on the agenda. People Jews behaved like Jews pretty much because the things that are pulling us apart now weren't pulling Jews apart. There were other things pulling Jews apart, but not not like now. But it's you know it's 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 a it's a concept that's really less than a century old, and uh, I like it. So hopefully it'll it'll have some it'll survive into the future. But but there are people who are critical of it. Um, so my next question, um, um, uh, let's see. Um, I'm going to skip question number three because we kind of covered it. Um, well, uh, we were talking a little bit about this before we started recording, so I'm going to ask you uh, on while we're recording to talk a bit about the process that you went through sifting through all the candidates for inclusion in the book, and um, you know some of the decisions you had to make, and not necessarily about particular individuals, but about the process and. Uh, how easy or difficult it was. I imagine it was very difficult.
3: Well, you know, there were. Uh, it was it was challenging and interesting to try and boil down. Uh, we, we were very struck, I think, both of us, because we spent a good deal of time reading a lot of different kinds of American Jewish thought, and we were struck by the range, the depth, and the quality. Um, it's a, uh, There are all sorts of conversations out there about how uh creative and impactful the american jewish experience has been not now from a sociological or an economic point of view but from the point of view of of it's cre- you know what has been creatively uh, uh uh produced um and i would say uh uh i, I would say that we were struck very positively by how much and different kinds of uh, creativity there was. And then we were faced with difficult choices. We, we could have written a whole other anthology of American Jewish thought populated by people who are not included in the 70-something excerpts that we have. We do signal this, both in the introduction to the work, where we have a list of um, many thinkers um, a number of whom are not included. And we tried also to mitigate this in some way by having a list, a partial list, to be sure, of other works by other thinkers that could have, uh, this is at the end of the book, for further reading. Um, but but uh, to be fair, um, there's a lot of great and interesting American Jewish thought out there. We looked as much as possible um, for Representative pieces that spoke in a pithy kind of a way to points we were interested in bringing out there into the fore. We hope this is a book that that uh, can be uh, uh, that one can learn from and get a kind of a sense of the range of ideas uh, to be found out there in the American Jewish conversation. Um, I can't tell you that there was some um, kind of magical formula by which we decided this one yes and this one no what David referred to earlier as this kind of dyadic approach, where we could find a piece that was clearly and sometimes even explicitly in conversation with another piece, we, we for pedagogic reasons, were quite moved to bring that that couple of, of, of uh, sources in because, again, everybody has different learning styles, for me at least, to be able to look at point and counterpoint, it's a useful way of Uh, um, picking up an idea. So I don't know if that answers your question. A lot of the process was spent, uh, uh, meals were consumed, telephone conversations were had, and there was kind of a haggling as to who would be in and who would be out.
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
2: Yeah, this dyadic content, I mean, for example, thinking in the uh, section on the Holocaust in Israel, uh, so we have Judith Butler, of course, the cultural critic uh, and feminist theorist, who certainly takes a rather uh, anti-Zionist kind of posture in her writings. We have a selection of hers, and then we have Ruth Weiss, uh, who certainly has a different attitude towards Israel and uh Questions of Jewish Power, or Peter Beinart and the editors of Commentary, who also don't completely agree uh, in relationship to issues on Israel. The only thing I'd add uh, substantively to what Michael said, the editors of the series asked us to not only include familiar uh, voices, in other words. Heschel, Soloveitcha Kaplan, of course, one would absolutely expect, uh, Rachel Adler, Judith Plaskow, uh, Susanna Heschel, all of these people very well known, and one would anticipate that they would be in a work of this uh, type. On the other hand, we try in this book to indicate that there is an ongoing effervescence and vitality to uh, American Jewish thought, that it's not a uh, simply an intellectual history in which people are not continuing to uh, discuss significant uh, issues of significant import. But as a result, people uh, like Mara Benjamin, uh, Benet Lepay, Jay Michelson, uh, Julia Watts Belzer. People might not anticipate names like this when they open our book, so that part of our hope here uh, was to introduce names to the larger, interested, and intellectually reading Jewish public so that these people and others could hopefully be uh, explored. I will say, on a personal level, as someone uh, like you, Phil, who lives often in the 19th century, in terms of most of my scholarship and work, writing a book of this type and deciding in the end who could who was and who was not to be included uh, has a personal valence that is simply not true in the 19th century. Namely, over the last 50 years, I know a lot of the thinkers. Personally, who are mentioned in this book, uh, and others who, as Michael indicated, we list both in the introduction to the work uh, and the conclusion. We took almost three years to produce this book. We went through literally thousands and thousands of writings. uh, And uh, I will now say that I have new respect for anthologizers uh, and the difficulty it is to put. work like this together. I never imagined quite how much work uh, this took. And in addition, of course, we take selections of selections. So we were also engaged in editing them to three to five page segments of what could be 100 page books, 40 page articles. And we hope we captured the essence of the arguments that people put forth. But we're aware that This is an enterprise that took uh, some degree of audacity, or to use that uh, familiar term chutzpah to put it together uh, in this way. But we hope that we have produced uh, a useful pedagogic volume for that reason. The last word I'd say is virtually anyone who would critique us for not including X, Y, or Z is probably correct. And an argument could be made to include them. The issue would be then, who would you omit from the book given what were the uh, constraints of uh, size? Yeah, you had a word limit. I, I will say, um, and, and this, this
1: crossed my mind, Well, I've I, I noticed it from my, my study of the book, but it crossed my mind a few minutes ago, and in in, um, I think what Michael was saying is that I, I think for the most part, to the extent that I'm familiar with the thinkers uh, who you bring in, that the selections that you're able to pull out of their work, whether it's a book or an article, you do a pretty good job of 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 honing in on what's essential. Um, hopefully, uh, hopefully enough to kind of like spark curiosity on the part of the reader to go further. But if you want to know what you know what Heschel thought about the Sabbath, for example, that selection really gets to the nub of that book, as with, as with many other selections. I, well, say I'm really
2: surprised at that, given uh, that uh, Michael edited that and his uh, lack quite clearly of familiarity with Heschel. Uh, Michael, you he really did a fine job in uh, doing that. Well,
1: uh, Yeah, the listener needs to know that, Marmer, that Michael Marmer is a bit of a scholar of Heschel. So that was a joke, but you might not get it if you're not told. Thank you.
2: I appreciate that.
3: Yeah, I find with David's jokes, it's usually a good idea to let people know that he's made them after he's said something.
2: <laughs> yeah, one important thing I will add is that uh, we still talk to one another and we've remained uh, very good friends, at least from my side. I don't want to... Uh, <laughs> no, no, to it's, it is it, but... it is mutual.
3: It is mutual.
2: So the next question... Uh
1: came up in in my, my pre-conversation with Michael David before you came on and he gave me permission to ask this so I am going to ask this um, it strikes and and I, and I know've I've, I've said this to you in email David I think it strikes me as unusual that that two reform rabbis who come therefore from a tradition that's very deeply embedded in in the ethical uh, and that and that Jewish ethics is very important and has had its own interesting evolution through this from 1934 to the present, that there's not a section in here on ethics. Um, And uh, I don't, I'm, I'm I'm raising it as a question to see if, you know, there was, there was thinking about it or why it's there or why it's rather why it's not there uh, and what you might have to say about it.
2: Well, there was a very cogent review of the book uh, written by someone named Phil Cohen, who uh, mentioned this explicitly in the, uh, in the review uh, to this. I, speaking on my behalf, Michael's, uh, you know, to some degree, we plead guilty. Uh, This was to some degree a genre question. That is to say, we do think that a lot of the essays in the book, particularly in the section on hermeneutics and politics, touch on uh, incredibly uh, significant ethical questions. All one has to do is look at the essays by Mitchell Cohen, uh, Jill Jacobs, and frankly, Mayor Kahana, to know that ethics are certainly dealt with in a significant way. Arthur Waskow's work on kashrut, eco-kashrut. We think there are a lot of essays in here that are significant uh, for ethical uh, reflection. On the other hand, as you point out quite correctly, we did not have a separate section on ethics. I don't think that indicates our lack of interest in it. Rather, I think in terms of how we looked at the genre of Jewish thought, we thought ethics perhaps deserved a uh, separate treatment uh, on its own. And I will say that we are currently uh, speaking with uh, and collaborating with uh Emily Filler and Jonathan Crane, the co-editors of the Journal of Jewish Ethics. We hope in a couple of years, perhaps, to produce uh, a volume dealing specifically with uh, with Jewish ethics. But it did not make the cut as, in quotes, a separate category in this book. Um, Michael,
3: you want to ask? I'll just mention, Phil, that we were very struck by your very cogent critique, and it came from a couple of other directions. Let me just mention one other category that might have warranted its own uh, section and doesn't have, and, and that we heard that from a number of very uh, highly regarded colleagues, um, and that is the whole area of interreligious uh, discourse and dialogue. I mean, again, if you, think, if you think about distinctive, contemporary North American Jewish concerns, then the encounter uh, with the other, you know, one thinks of the work of Yitz Greenberg in this regard and uh, many others. Um, Again, you won't hear from us some attempt to defend our selections as the only possible way that one could uh, put this together. And anybody who, uh, and everybody who feels that they could do it better uh, is warmly invited to to do so. I, I, I must admit that I am, every time I hear one of these critiques, I think Wow, that's, they've got a good point. In the case of ethics, I mean, w- w- what we did with regard to into religious dialogue is there's an extended footnote at some point in the book where we point people to all sorts of writing and reading on this that they may want to in- look into. In the case of Jewish ethics, I think uh, what David said is, is quite right. We did sprinkle the book with some ethical uh, uh, pieces that have a, a clear ethical concern. But yes, uh, uh, this whole area of Jewish ethics May warrant its own distinct treatment, and we're actually thinking about that and working towards that right now.
1: Okay. Well, thank you. Um, let's see. Sorry for the delay here. I'm just looking what I want to bring up next because we got we got time maybe for one more question. Um, yeah, I you know you both know that that I, I write science fiction. Um, got one book out, and I'm working on the next one. So this is a kind of a science fictiony type question. Um, um, so you know we're well aware that that people like Heschel and Kaplan continue to receive a great deal of scholarly attention. Uh, you know the Heschel, the recent Heschel biography by Julian Zelizer in the Yale University Press series, for example. A, a, I'm sorry, Yale University Jewish Lives series, or the release of Mordechai Kaplan's voluminous diaries. So I, this is this is a purely hypothetical question, and you can feel free to punt on this if you like. But when your intellectual successors publish the anthology of American Jewish thought since 2020, who among them do you think, among the con- contemporary thinkers, who, who who do you think will work, who will appear there? Who who who's the new Heschel or Kaplan or or Soloveitchik? Um, and if you you know you you feel free to punt, but I'm wondering who you think is like currently doing really interesting work in thought and is in the book.
3: I would, uh, I'll, I'll start the bidding um, and it's, it's a great question. Of course, the uh, attempts to say what the coming uh, trends are going to be. I, I can't help but, but remember that Milton Steinberg was convinced that um, uh, uh, that uh, whether I'm now blanking for a moment, Will Herberg was the Jewish thinker for the ages and the, and the person who best represented the zeitgeist and so forth. And Will Herberg, who is included in our volume, has not had the kind of, uh, um, the last few decades of not being kind to reading and thinking about his work. So these these predictions are always dangerous. I'm going to mention Mara Benjamin who we include at the end of our revelation and commandment section? Um, I think that her work, both uh, as scholarship on but also creative theology about um, new you know new directions, new ways of thinking and talking about God and commandment. I would uh, I would be fairly confident that our intellectual successors would include her and others. Uh, um, uh, of her caliber who are who are producing fascinating stuff right now.
2: Yeah, I would uh, really agree with Michael. I think some of the most exciting work is being done by uh, feminist uh, thinkers. I think there is a great deal of effervescence there. I think Julia Belser will also be an individual who will uh, be heard from more and more. It's so funny that Michael mentioned Mara because I also find her work to be particularly uh, promising and suggestive uh, in all types of ways. Of course, the only problem with predicting uh, the future with any certainty is it hasn't yet unfolded. Uh, I also anticipate that uh, there will be more uh, Jews of Sephardic Mizrahi background in North America who will begin to uh, write. I don't know who those figures will yet be. Uh, and I imagine that there are going to be Jews of color who will begin to write in a theological vein. I, I will say we have one essay by uh, Lewis Thomas. Uh, Lewis Gordon. Lewis Gordon. I apologize. Oh boy. Lewis Gordon uh, representing, you know, a position of a uh, Jew of color writing of a Jew of color. But, uh, While we found a great, great deal of sociological literature produced uh, on the topic, there hasn't yet been a great deal of uh, theological uh, type literature, philosophical literature produced. And yet I would anticipate over the next uh, 20 to 30 years, you're going to have much more literature uh, of this type from these groups that are written. All right, so um,
1: I think we're, we're we're coming to the end. David has a time constraint, uh, and we've we've covered covered a great deal of territory. I, I will say, um, I find this book to be really terrific. I, 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 you know, whatever my criticisms of it are, pale by comparison to what the two of you have accomplished in this. I, I think it's a great adult ed tool, but that's kind of. Uh, that's in a way, it's a kind of demeaning term. I mean, it's important that adults pick up this book and read it. But I think it's also a really good tool for people who, who are seriously interested in Jewish philosophy, Jewish theology, Jewish thought to use this as a, as a beginning point. And then, as you said both a couple times, pay careful attention to the bibliography at the end of the book and use this as a launching pad to engage in more... Um, Detailed study of a field that that you know I I really love myself. So thank you both. I appreciate it. I really do appreciate your time, and I think we did a pretty good job of uh, bringing out a lot of aspects of your work. So again, thank you.
3: Thank you, Phil. Thank
2: you, Phil. We really appreciate it.